But we're finishing up the book of Judges, and it doesn't exactly end on a good note. But there are different ways that we study history. Uh, The primary way that we use in our classrooms is we look at big events that took place, major events, major figures of history. And that's important, but what happens when you do that is you often miss some of these underlying issues that contribute to and lead to those major issues. Well, many professional historians now will take a, a major history event or a major period of time, and they'll begin to look at what else was going on in that time. What, what was going on in the normal, everyday person's life? And, and that's kind of where we are in the book of Judges. Uh, we've gone through all of the major judges, and at this point, you'll notice as we go through, there are no judges mentioned. Now, there's one more judge that we haven't gotten to yet, but he's not in the book of Judges. Do you know who that is? Samuel. Samuel was the last judge, and he's the one who's authoring this book. So, while Samuel has focused on the judges, these leaders of Israel that have become increasingly, increasingly more religiously and morally corrupted, but the leaders are just a reflection of the rest of the nation. And so... Today, we're not going to examine these main leaders, but the lives of normal, everyday people and what's going on in their lives. So these last couple of, or several chapters of Judges consist of two major episodes. that can, One covers two chapters, one covers the last three chapters. And we're going to try to cram all that together uh, this morning into one sermon. So if you would, we're just going to jump into it at Judges chapter 17 and verse 1. Judges chapter 17 and verse 1. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver taken from you, and that I heard you utter a curse about, here I have the silver with me. I took it, so now I return it to you. Then his mother said, My son, you are blessed by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image overlaid with silver. So he returned the silver to his mother. She took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image overlaid with silver, and it was in Micah's house. This man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and installed one of his sons to be his priest. And then this refrain that we've heard over and over again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. So the first thing I want us to see this morning as the start of the religious failure of Israel. The start of the religious failure of Israel. And it starts with the corruption of this household. Right? So we see this man named Micah. Micah lives in Ephraim. Okay, so a couple things about Micah. The name Micah means who is like God, right? And the implication would be no one. No one is like God. And so the implication here is that the family seeks to follow after Yahweh. And being from the hill country of Ephraim, that means that he's in the very heart, the very center of of Israel, one of the tribes that's on the center. It's not the fringe areas that are meeting the Canaanites, but the very center of the nation. 
fact, we would think that in the heart of Israel would be the people who are strongest and most closely connected to the worship of Yahweh, but we soon find that that's not the case. In fact, we find that Micah his, sees his mother's great wealth as 1,100 pieces of silver, and what does he do? He steals it. He takes it and has thereby broken two commands of the Ten Commandments, right? says you should honor your father and mother. Well, that's not very honoring to steal from your mother. And second of all, you're not supposed to steal. So, so far, he's already broken two of the Ten Commandments. And stealing, according to the law, was punishable by death. But his mother didn't know who stole it, so she just pronounces a curse upon whoever it was who stole it in the name of Yahweh. But then the son hears the curse, and he comes back, and he says, I heard the curse that you made, and I am the one who took the silver. And he, he brings it back, and he, he doesn't do this because it's the right thing to do, but because he was afraid of the curse. He was afraid of the punishment. He did it because of his own self-interest. And as we're looking at this passage, uh, these last several chapters of Judges, we're going to see this idea of relativism come back that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There's not a standard of truth. Everyone does what's in their own self-interest. And that's what we see here, is that this man, Micah, acts in his own self-interest. He's not worried about what's right. He's worried about what's right for him. And so he doesn't want to be punished, because that wouldn't be right for him. So he brings it back. Everyone's looking out for their own self-interest here. Now, when he confesses, what should have happened was his mother should have disciplined him in some way. But instead, what we see is she praises him. Thank goodness it wasn't somebody else but my own son, and he gave it back. And so she celebrates the return of her silver by giving some of this silver to be made into an idol. And that idol is then placed in her son's house, and Micah gathers the needed materials together to have his own temple worship there. He, he sets up a complete cult temple, like complete with having an, an ephod like the priest in Yahweh's temple. He has uh, his son becomes the priest for his temple. And really, as we're looking at this, everything that we're seeing in these verses violates God's law. He's disrespecting his parents. He's a thief. He's making a graven image. He's installing idol worship. He's, he's got the ephod. He's turning his home into a place of worship. And what he has done is he has set up a perverse and illegitimate worship center that is similar to the one in God's temple. But because Micah doesn't want to go to God's temple and worship the true God, he sets up this perverse other alternative way. And we think, what's wrong with that? Because our society tells us that everyone should worship God whatever way they see best. Whatever seems best to you, that's how you should worship God. Who are we to judge what is right or wrong? And that's exactly the point that Samuel is making here. That's why verse 6 is there where it is. He did all this because it was right in his own eyes. He did all this because there was no standard of truth for him each person just did whatever they wanted. Now, if you've ever watched the show Arrested Development, 
Uh, there's a scene in, in one episode that illustrates the absurdity here. Uh, Michael and his son are lamenting because they've both been recently been lied to, and his son says to, his, to the father, it's, it's just so hard to know the right thing to do. And his dad responds, yes, you're right. It's not like there's some list of rules that have been handed down to us from on high. And as he says this, directly above him, you see the statue of the Ten Commandments that's being pulled off of the public square by a crane and taken away. When we remove the source of truth, of absolute truth, all that is left is relativism, relativistic truth, which says that right and wrong is not universally determined, but if you want to know what's right and what's wrong, you have to look at each individual person, you have to look at each individual society. They're the ones who determine what is right and wrong. And if you want to know what a society that stands by that looks like, we look at the book of Judges. And sadly, we look at the world around us. But where does this begin? Well, we notice here, it begins in one household, the household of Micah, the Ephraimite, who stopped following God to do what he thought was right. And we'll see that that has a greater effect than what you would think. So let's continue reading in verse 7. There was a young man, a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, who resided within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to settle wherever he could find a place. Now on his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. And Micah asked him, where do you come from? And he answered him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to settle wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. Which is kind of weird because he says you'll be like a father to me, but he says he becomes like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, because a Levite has become my priest. So Micah had set up this cult worship with what he had, which was the only priest he could get was his son. That's all he had. But later, this Levite from Bethlehem comes through the area, and he's kind of just a wanderer. He's wandering around. I don't fit in here, so I'm just wandering around. And let me explain for a moment why this is important. According to God's law, only a Levite could be a priest. So the fact that Micah's son is a priest is illegitimate in itself. That's not to say that all the Levites were priests. They, were still, they had to be consecrated to the Lord. They had to be set aside for his purpose through a ceremony uh, to become a priest. But in order to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. Micah's son was not a Levite, and so he was fully illegitimate to be serving as Yahweh. And we see the insecurity of Micah in this. For even though he'd built his own temple, his own shrine, he'd installed his own uh, system, arranged for the proper accoutrements for all of that, and dedicated his own son as a priest, there's still this question, these doubts that's taking place. And So instead of relying on a system of worship and 
cultic expression that was designed by God and guaranteed to be effective, Micah's was a man-made religion. He was doing his own thing, and his expressions of, of faith couldn't satisfy his doubts. In fact, expressions of faith that are man-made will never, never satisfy the doubts of the human soul. But now, a Levite has come into his house. There's some legitimacy possible here. So seeking this opportunity to legitimize his false temple, Micah offers the Levite an economic opportunity. He says, I'll give you a place to live. I'll give you a salary. I'll take care of all your clothing needs. I'll take care of all the provisions that you need if you will come and be a priest for my temple. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Levite at this point. But he should have at least known better than to accept this offer. And I'll tell you more about why here in a minute. But he would know that by actively serving in a sinful and illegitimate temple with idol worship would be against God's law. But even this man, even this man who had become, had the potential to become a priest, is shown to be an opportunistic man. What looks good for me is this guy's going to take care of me economically. So I'm going to seize this opportunity to be a priest. Well, as long as Micah had his son functioning as a priest, there was doubts about the uh, success, the, the validity of the provisions. Well, now his cult has some legitimacy because he has a Levite for a priest. And we see that even the priesthood, even those who are supposed to be working on God's behalf amongst the people of Israel, even God's set-aside appointed people amongst his set-aside appointed nation are turning away from God to worship in cults. He did not seek after God, but he saw what looked good economically, so he followed the money. He placed his faith in the Micah's money rather than in God. There's a word of caution here as you're looking for a pastor. Make sure that it's a man who's not just seeking after an economic opportunity, but who is actually following the Lord. Well, here's the problem. He faith, the, this priest put his faith in money, in the silver, in the economic situation. But if you place your faith and trust in anything that is not God, it changes. Only God is unchanging. So if you trust in economic decisions, you're putting your faith on shifting sands, and we see what happens next. And as we get into verse 18, I'm, or chapter 18, we're going to go through this pretty quickly. So we've seen the corruption of a household, we've seen the corruption of the priest, and now we're going to see the corruption of the people. So Samson, you remember Samson, he was supposed to have defeated the Philistines, and he caused plenty of a thorn in their side, but when he died, he, it says he killed more in his death than he did in his life, but he didn't defeat them all. They were still there, they were still a problem, and the tribe of Dan, which was under pressure from the Philistines and the territory that God had given to them under Joshua, they began to get tired of being under Philistine rule. And so 
they decided instead of fighting the Philistines who are strong, let's go find one of these other sister tribes and let's just take their land. Let's take the land God gave them. And so the people of Dan looked for land elsewhere further in Israel. They sent five spies to go seek out the land. Well, these five spies happened to come to Micah's house. And as they come to Micah's house, they recognize that guy is a Levite. And how did they know that guy was a Levite? It says because he had an accent, right? So, like when I were to go to New York and people would be like, where are you from? You're not from around here, right? What brings you here? And that's basically what they say to this Levite. What brings you here? You're supposed to be back in Judah in Bethlehem. And so the Levite says that he'd been hired by Micah to be this priest in this house cult. And these five spies go, okay, well, won't you, as a priest, take the, uh, there were some stones that would go in the pouch on the ephod, and they would use these stones to determine a yes or no question from God. So won't you ask this question of God and see the answer that comes back? And so this Levite divined what the Lord said, and they said, the question was, if we go, will the Lord give this land to us? And the Levite says, God says yes, right? That's what you want to hear. So yeah, if you do this, God will bless it. So these spies go on up. They find the city of Laish, which is a quiet, unsuspecting city that's away from all the other people. They, they don't have to worry about anybody telling them what to do because they're out in the country away from everybody else. And that was the way they liked it. They didn't want to be bothered. But the problem with that is it meant that if they were attacked, there was no help coming. And so these five spies, they go, they see this, and they go back and report it to their whole tribe of Danites. So the Danites decide, we're going to go, we're going to invade Laish. But what should have happened is they leave from Dan, go straight to Laish, and they would have avoided a whole bunch of problems and just been able to go straight there, no hills, no mountains, anything. But instead what they do is they take the route that the spies had taken, go up into the hill country of Ephraim. Why do they do this? Well, these spies had come back and told their fellow Danites about Micah's house cult, and the people were amazed by this. This was a novel idea. Think about this. Do you remember the first time you ever saw someone with a home computer? You walk in, and you see they've got this computer set up. They can do all this stuff. I remember I would use a computer at school, and then I would see people using it at work, but I never thought as a kid that, we would, everybody would have one in their house. But then my grandpa got one, and I thought, well, that's just so cool that you can have a computer in your house. What a good idea that is. And you know, now we carry little personal computers around with us everywhere we go. But at that time, it was revolutionary. And then it began to pop up everywhere. Everybody got a personal computer. Well, these Danites are looking at Micah's house cult, and they're thinking, what a great idea. Why would we travel all the way from Dan to go to, at this time, Shiloh, where the Lord's temple is? Why travel all the way there to go worship God when we could just set one up ourselves? So, let's see what happens. Chapter 18 and verse 16. 
the 600 Danite men were standing by the entrance of the gate of Micah's house, armed with their weapons of war. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the land went in, took the car of image, overlaid with silver, the ephod, and the household idols, while the priest was standing at the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. When they entered Micah's house and took the car of image overlaid with silver, the ephod, and the household idols, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they told him, Shut up. <laughs> Be quiet. Keep your mouth shut. Come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. Isn't it better for you to be the priest for a whole nation rather than just for one man. And so, verse 20, the priest was pleased, took his ephod, household idols, carved image, and went with the people of Dan. And they prepared to leave, putting their small children, livestock, and possessions in front of them. Now, apparently, I include verse 21 in that because we see them putting these children and livestock in front. Apparently, Micah had built up quite a following. He had gotten some women, some children involved in this. There was some livestock. And when the Danites came, they took everything. They took it all, including the Levitical priest. When the Danites came to the priest, they said, wouldn't it be better for you? Wouldn't it be a better economic situation if instead of this one man paying you, we all paid you? He said, Sounds good to me. Let's go. And so he left Micah, took the false god with him, took the uh, instruments of false worship, everything that Micah had built for himself. And, well, as you can imagine, Micah finds out about this. He's not too happy. So he gets several other men that had joined in his cult worship, and they chase after these other men. And they accuse him. Verse uh, 24, he said, You took the gods I had made, and the priest I had made, and went away. What do I have left? How can you say to me, what's the matter with you? And the Danites said to him, Don't raise your voice against us, or angry men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. And so the Danites went on their way, and Micah turned to go back home, because he saw they were stronger than he was. Micah's response shows the reality of the situation. What he had made or had made with his own hands had turned into his gods. What he truly worshipped was himself. He built up all of this stuff for himself, but then when somebody who was more powerful than he was came, it was all gone. And Micah was left with nothing. And that's the reality of a relativistic culture. Whoever shouts the loudest, whoever seems to have the most power, they're the ones everybody listens to. And everybody else is just left with nothing. His Levitical priest moved on to the next big thing. And when the Danites went to Laish, they killed everyone, conquered the city. And notice how the story ends in verse 30. The Danites set up the carved image for themselves. Jonathan, Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. And his sons were priests for the Danite tribe until the time of exile from the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image that he had made. It was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. So the corruption of Micah's household extended to the whole tribe of Dan, and that's the way unchecked sin works, is it just minor sin grows into major sin. 
It grew until it was out of control. Micah could have no control over it anymore. It's gone on to the city of Dan, or the people of Dan. And then we learn the identity of this Levite man. He is Moses' descendant. In fact, if we were to look at this as directly, sometimes the language will say, you know, he's related to these people by this. But if we take it literally, then he would be Moses' grandson. Regardless, he's related to Moses, the one who brought the law, brought God's law to the people. He should have known better. Probably did know better. But one man's corruption in his religion led to the corruption of a priest, led to the corruption of a whole tribe of people because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so we see this religious failure has continued to grow and grow. But what happens when you have religious failure? It doesn't stop there. When your religious failures, when your religion fails, what follows is moral failure. So when we break away from the true worship of God, of the true God, when we reject God's laws and we do what's right in our own eyes, it affects what we think is right and wrong. Because there's no truth. If you don't have truth that's coming from God, there's confusion. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so, real quickly, we're going to move on to the final story of Judges, where we see this failure. So in Judges 19, I'm not going to read a lot of the passages. I'm just going to summarize it for you. In Judges 19, we find another Levite from Bethlehem, right? Another man who could have been a priest. He took a woman as his concubine wife. Now, this was a normal practice amongst the Canaanites. They would have a slave wife in addition to their free wife. And so this Levite was already breaking God's law, right? God's law says to commit adultery is a sin. By having a second wife, he was committing adultery. So we already begin on a bit of a sour note here. But then things get worse. The woman, the the concubine wife, was unfaithful to him. She played the harlot. She cheated on him just as he was cheating on his wife. But things get heated. She moves out. She goes back to her father's house. And so already we see that one moral failure leads to another. And the moral corruption causes problems in the relationship. Well, after about four months, the man decides, I'm going to go reconcile with my concubine wife and bring her back. And so it says he goes to her father's house to win her back with sweet words. Well, regardless of whether the woman decides herself to go back or if she's forced back, um, they begin the journey to go back to Bethlehem. And the woman's father had delayed the, the Levite several times. And the man gets frustrated and says, you know what, it doesn't matter that it's too late. I'm, we're just going to leave. And so instead of leaving in the morning like he had planned, they end up leaving in the afternoon. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us because we can just jump in our car, go, and be wherever in about 15 minutes. But they're going to travel by foot, more than likely, foot or donkey. And so travel had to be carefully planned. You don't want to be caught out at night because there's thieves, but there's also wild animals who will attack you. You want to be in a city where you're secure. Most cities at that time had big gates, big walls surrounding them, so... They should have left in the morning to get to the next town and and get in and secure before dark. But instead, they left in the afternoon. And as the evening wears on, the Levite servant, they come to uh, the city of Jebus, which would later become Jerusalem, but at this point is a pagan city. 
And the Levite says, I don't want to stop in this pagan city. I don't know what I might run into. And so we're going to continue on until we get to an Israelite city. And so they journey on. They come to the city of Gebeah, a Benjaminite city. And that's where we see a big problem that moral failure has spread to not just being in relationships, not just being individuals, but being a societal-wide issue. So we see the societal moral failure. For as they enter the city, the Mosaic law required that if someone is an Israelite and a stranger comes to you and says, I need a place to stay, and you have the provisions to allow them to do so, you are required by law, by God's law, to let them stay with you, to be hospitable. But the Levite and his crew find no one who is willing to allow them to stay in their house. And so they set up camp in the city square. Now, as we read this, we probably don't think much about it because we go, I wouldn't want to invite a complete stranger in my house. In fact, if you did, we'd probably call you foolish because you never know what they might do to you. They might steal from you. They might kill you. You don't know. But according to the law of that time, hospitality was to be given And it was a a culturally failure. A failure to do that would bring great shame upon one's household. But even this Israelite, this Levite, this, this man who should have been treated with great respect by the people was refused. And so he sets up in the city square. An old man comes from the field. He finds the Levite and his crew out in the field. And he says, what are y'all doing? You're not from around here. And the Levite explained that despite the people seeming to have plenty of provisions, nobody offered them hospitality. And so we find out that the old man is from Ephraim, right? So once again, we have a connection between these two stories. Uh, So he's not from there either, but he does have a house there. And he insists that this Levite and his entourage come stay with him. Well, While the Levite and his host are eating dinner, all of a sudden there comes a banging on the door, and the the men of the city, there's a a gang of men there, and they they call out to the old man, I want you to bring out your guest. And they tell the reason why. Well, we want you to bring out this man that we saw going around town because we want to rape him. And so, if you're familiar with the Bible, this brings to mind what happened in Genesis 19 in the city of Sodom. But that city was full of pagans. This city is full of Benjaminites, full of people who are of Israel, supposed to be God's people, and we see how corrupted they have become because they come, they see this man, think, well, this young man, this priest, he's a pretty attractive guy. We, we want to have our way with him. Well, seeking to appease the mob, the old man then offers both his virgin daughter and the Levite's wife to the mob. They just shove them out the door, leave them there, close the door, and it says that the gang of men rape the woman all night long, and then they leave her lifeless body on the doorstep in the morning. Well, the Levite comes out the next morning, gets her body, puts it on his donkey, takes her home, and then he begins to dismember her body. He cuts her up into 12 pieces and mails each of the pieces to one of the tribes of Israel. Now, this sounds pretty gruesome, right? Pretty dark stuff. Pretty nasty. It makes their stomachs turn. But at the same time, it's not something that's like, wow, that's completely nuts. It's 
kind of nuts to find in the Bible, but we turn on the news, we've heard stories similar to this before. It's not something new to us. It's not novel. And that's I think, just speaks to our, the culture we live in. But it doesn't shock us like it should. But it sure shocks the people of Israel. Look at 19 and verse 30. 19 and verse 30. Everyone who saw this said, Nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt to this day. They say, think it over, discuss, and speak up. And so the, the Levite has given them a, a picture of what happened. And we, if you look on into chapter 20 and his witness of what happened, he doesn't implicate what he did in anything. But So it's a little bit of a twisted picture. But points out what the tribe of Benjamin did. And so the people then are outraged, as they should be, about this cruel injustice that happened to this woman, to the Levite. And so they're motivated to seek justice for what happened, and we see that they enact immoral social justice. The 11 tribes, aside from the tribe of Benjamin, they decide to to go to the tribe of Benjamin, they raise an army, and they demand, you need to make this right. You need to repent. You are guilty of this. And the Benjaminites' response is, no. No. Don't think we will. Who are you, other tribes, to say that what happened was wrong? After all, these people that this happened to, they weren't Benjaminites. They're not of us. They're different than us. We don't care. And so these other tribes say, we're, we're going to go to war. We're going we're gonna to slaughter. So we begin to see the civil war break out between the Benjaminites and the rest of the tribes. And as you can imagine... When you have 11 against 1, it doesn't go very well for the Benjaminites. The other tribes completely decimate the Benjaminites, and the rest of Israel is so disgusted with them that they say, we're not going to give our daughters to marry your son. So the tribe of Benjamin is about to die out. And then another problem emerges, right? So they go, well, we can't allow the tribe of Benjamin to just completely die out. God gave us... 12 tribes for a reason. So they decide, maybe we were a little too zealous in our retribution. Maybe we went a little bit too far. So they decide we're going to have to build back up the tribe of Benjamin. So they decide, well, we're not going to give them our daughters. So they go to the nearest pagan city and go in and kill all the men, take all their daughters, and give them as wives to the Benjaminites. But there was only about 400 in that city, so there wasn't enough. And so they began to go out and snatch up more women. And through this, we see that this society has become so completely broken, so completely corrupted, that the people of God, the people who are supposed to be living as a witness for God to all the nations around them, look as bad, if not worse, than all these other nations. The people of God sought to engage in social justice because of this terrible wrong that had happened. But because of what they do, they end up in a very bloody civil war. They then resort to murdering people who are not involved in this at all. They get involved in human trafficking. And does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this sound like the world we live in? 
But notice the last words of the book of Judges, 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. This version says everyone did whatever he wanted. Your version might say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right, what seemed right to them. And this phrase is both an ending and an introduction. Okay, because it says, welcome to the world in which we belong. Welcome to the world where there is no absolute truth, but everything is relative. Everybody does what they think is right. And the implication that is here is that if Israel were to have a human king, if they were to have a centralized government, then the king could communicate effectively to the people what you should do, how you should live, what is right, what is wrong, what you should do, and what you should, why you should do it that way. And the impulse is if, to look at rulership, uh, to look at lordship outside of oneself. Because if you're doing it all yourself, and you're the one making the rules, then you go, well, I don't know what's right and wrong. But if the king says, this is right, this is wrong, then you have a system to abide by. So they began to look outside of themselves, looking for a king. And they think, if we have a human king like all these nations around us, we'll be better. But we find, if you continue on through the story, through Samuel and kings and chronicles, you'll find that a, a human leader ultimately fails. We see that the people of Israel get a king, they get Saul, that doesn't go well. And then King David comes, and he does a lot better, but ultimately he fails too. Solomon fails, and then the kings keep failing over and over and over again. So we know from Israel's history that that doesn't work. We look at ancient history, see that doesn't work. We look at recent history, and we see that there's no way that you can legislate morality. A mere law that's given by a government doesn't make people refuse to do bad and choose to do good. What we needed and what we still need is an intervention of the one true king. See, Jesus is the king you need. Jesus is the one true king. My question to you this morning is, what is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to you? Because you might say, well, Jesus is my savior. And that's true. But if you look at the Bible and you read the New Testament through, you'll find that it speaks of Jesus much more often as Lord, as King, than it does as Savior. And when you try to make Jesus your Savior, but not your King, not your Lord, you reject His authority, and you end up in the realm of judges, where you do what is right in your own eyes, and maybe try to justify it by using some scriptures. But you must submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of your life because Jesus said himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. A society without truth ends up in ignorance, in hatred, and in violence, and we see that when we look out at the world. But does your life, does it reflect the chaos of relativism? Or does it reflect 
the integrity that comes from following God's unchanging principles in His Word. Through living a holy, spirit-infused, spirit-filled life that follows the grace of Jesus Christ, the way of Jesus Christ. Have you made Him your King? Are you following Jesus? If you're not following, would you surrender to Him this morning? I invite you to stand as we have a time of response this morning.